1: Submitted for your consideration, this is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, but not just a podcast about culture, but part of culture itself. Today, four individuals look at The Twilight Zone, which explains the strange voice I'm affecting. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, a man who just wanted to talk into a microphone, but will soon find, to his chagrin, that some microphones hate the sound of his voice.
2: This is Erica Spires, and I am wishing COVID right into the cornfield.
3: I'm Brian Hurt, and you know you've been in quarantine too long when you watch Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, and it kind of makes you miss
4: air travel. And this is Ken Gerber, feverishly trying to anticipate the twist at the end of this podcast. Welcome, Ken. Good to have you back. I am delighted to be back. Thanks for inviting me, gang.
2: Yeah, I'm excited.
4: Why this topic, Brothers Gerber? Is this where we need to
3: let people know what The Twilight Zone is, just to you know, prime them on this podcast? Do it. This is for Ken's benefit also, because he's, he's new to The Twilight Zone. Yeah, why are we doing The Twilight Zone?
4: It is an, I think, underappreciated show for many people. In fact, there are people I know in my science fiction book club who don't actually know what The Twilight Zone is, which is perhaps a measurement more of their age than their uh, appreciation for finer things. It's a measurement of your judgment of friends. <laughs> when there's something you appreciate as a child and then you get older and you have to reckon with the fact that it's either not as great as you thought it was, for example, like a band you liked as a teenager, and then you find out for other things that what you thought was great was even better than you knew. That's a really an exciting thing. And I remember getting back into the twilight zone in my 20s and thinking, oh my God, this is really great. For some, you know, mileage may vary, but it's the greatest science fiction show of all time, or certainly ranks up there. And it is, I think, an important moment in television history that isn't quite as watchable as you might like it to be. But when you watch it in 2020, it is still a very impressive feat. And if you consider when it was made even more so. So I think that's why we're talking about this today. That was my love letter to the Twilight Zone anyway. Way to show your cards there, Ken. You're in the future reflecting back on 2020 on
1: the Jordan Peele version of the Twilight Zone, of course, right? (laughs) That's right. I I think we
3: should maybe mention our ground rules for spoilers on the show, because the second season of the fourth revival of the Twilight Zone, the Jordan Peele version is it was released, as we're speaking, about a week ago, and Twilight Zone is a show that can be spoiled, and we won't spoil any episodes from the current season of the current version of the Twilight Zone. So everything else is fair game in terms of what happens in episodes and how they end, but I think since pretty new, we, we would do better. I, I think we can talk about premises of episodes, maybe anything up to the narrator's introduction but let's not talk about how things end from this season.
2: Brian, can you really spoil something that's projecting so hard what the what the twist is going to be? I will
3: admit that I did not know how one of the 10 episodes is going to end is going to end.
1: <laughs> I think we can spoil ovation. That is the only episode that Ooh. within the first 3 minutes like you know 95% of the beats that it's going to go
4: through. Totally. And it's going to take way too long to go through them. I took your advice and didn't watch that one. I watched seven of them, and that's definitely one that I missed, but uh, I don't think I'll bother. The IMDb rating is quite poor.
3: Did you watch the last one
4: you yes. might also like? Okay, I did, sure did.
3: Erica, did you watch some?
2: Most? All? None? No, I watched three of the new season, and then I gave up and I just started watching the old ones that were recommended, and I enjoyed myself way more.
1: <laughs> Smart. What about you, Mark? I feel like we're taking our priors here as implicitly given that. Well, I just wanted to know which ones you saw. I watched the whole new season. I've seen all the Jordan Peele ones and I tried to watch a few of the 80s ones and then watched the ones so Ken gave us a list I'll provide to people of eight episodes and then tried to start from the beginning so I watched about the first half of the first season of the old one. You had sent me one of the second revival episodes. I Don't recall any of those at the time. I think this is going to be news to people that this is actually the third revival. They will have forgotten one or both of the intermediate ones. And then just tried to see a a few more off of people's top 25 lists. Erica,
2: your priors on this? I remember growing up and watching some of the Twilight Zone and at least understanding the premise behind a lot of them. But it has been years. So Last year, when the first iteration of the Jordan Peele came out, we were very excited. We had CBS All Access already and love Kumail Nanjiani and love Jordan Peele. And we were both so disappointed by the first one. We're like, do we want to continue watching this? Because we already had so many things we were watching. So we didn't at the time. I also have, I was gifted for Christmas a few years ago, The Outer Limits. So like the, the type of genre, also Black Mirror, I've seen several of those. So like this type of genre I'm very familiar with. But it was good to go back and rewatch some of the old Twilight Zone, a lot of which I hadn't seen growing up. And the movie. I grew up watching the movie, too. Are we putting that into this canon as well?
3: I think we are, right? So the Twilight Zone itself, there was the series that launched in 1959, a 1983 movie, and then TV revivals in 1985, 2002, and 2019. And I think also all of the anthology shows are fair game, including ones that were you know back in the 60s as well as
1: through up until today. And do you consider, I know Rod Serling's night gallery, late 60s, early 70s, was mostly not under his control and you know should not represent the Twilight Zone brand, but he wrote a few of those at least, right? Do they
4: sort of count in your mind as honorary Twilight Zones? I don't consider them Twilight Zones. I consider it a real Serling work maybe a little more than you do, it is much more horror than it is this spectrum-wide speculative fiction that The Twilight Zone is. The writing in his monologue, in his introduction, is really feels like it's a Twilight Zone and feels like him. But the show doesn't feel like it. It's just a little too much predictable horror. So I don't consider it The Twilight Zone. It's nice to know that it's out there, and I think there is some good stuff within it. And they had some real good actors. I mean, he still had some cachet at the time, so he still was able to put together some top-notch Hollywood folks for that show.
3: It's funny you mention his intro, the classic Rod Serling voiceover. I guess in the first season it was a voiceover, and then he was on screen. And then his outro at the end. I admit, getting ready for this podcast, I watched more of the revivals than I did of the original, just because I've seen the original more recently. It seems like it's an effortless thing, but... It can really be done incredibly poorly and clumsily and irritatingly to the point where I have a a new appreciation for how good those were, of how Rod Serling would set it up with just the right amount of information and the right amount of scaffolding and his perspective on what was going on without... Being overly descriptive or pedantic or whatever. I I just, I feel like in particular, the, it was uh, Forrest Whitaker in the 2002 edition. His are banal. And I kind of wish, I don't know, with this current version, Jordan Peele seems like he needs to lighten up or something. I mean, I feel like he's not in on the joke that the Twilight Zone is not completely serious. And he seems, I feel like not that Rod Sterling was goofing, but we were sort of part of it in a way that. I wish Jordan Peele just did the narrator a little bit differently.
2: Well, that's a good question, though. Was Rod Serling actually in on kind of the joke? Or do we just look at it now with our lens thinking that, oh, that's a little campy. Some of the episodes are definitely very campy. Or did he take it super seriously, and that's why it worked?
3: I think his humor, it was a little impish. Like He was a puppet master, and we were going to watch his puppet show. Maybe it was just his delivery style, but I, it's one of my many thieves about the current edition. It was actually the episode we've already harshed on, which was Ovation, where I think that was one of the few times we saw a little humor from Jordan Peele in the, as the narrator. At the end of it? The part that we're not spoiling, that's right.
2: <laughs> well, when he picks up whatever it is, that was really funny. And you could tell it was in front of a green screen and he was having a little fun with that intro. I also think it was funny, we were on a previous call, I don't know if this would have been in the after talk or not, but we talked about how... This man said he was 35 years old and perchance to dream and we're like, wow, that's some really hard living. Well, (laughs) we also came upon a picture of Rod Serling at the age of 25. And boy, it looked like he was a hard 40. Three packs a day, I
3: understand. And that takes commitment. I mean, that's inhaling between bites of food if you're going to get three packs in there. So,
4: Had he also been through the war?
3: Oh yeah, he, he served in World War II. So I think one of the things that drove this discussion, or why we decided to talk about it, is the enduring popularity of The Twilight Zone, and why it keeps coming back. And is it coming back successfully, or is this the case of, I I once heard this idea of Krispy Kreme donuts, where you buy a box of them, and you eat one, and it tastes so good, and you want to recapture it, so you eat another one, and it's just not as good. But what you keep doing is eating more of them, trying to recapture the magic. I I understand meth is the same way, and (laughs) I feel like what's happening with the Twilight Zone is we are just keep going back to that box trying to recapture the magic, and it I don't want to say it's getting worse, but it, we're not getting back to where we were. And I don't know if there was some special sauce of the original, or it was the time at when it was made, and now when you can do anything on television is a show that was built on telling stories through science fiction because you couldn't do anything on
1: television just doesn't work anymore. I feel like I need to be the voice of the person who kind of craps on the original, do it that they're super dated he has a very cheesy sensibility in certain ways there are things in the storytelling so one of the most beloved episodes you can probably tell me the title when the guy returns to his hometown but he's actually gone back in time is that a stop at willoughby or is it long walk home or something
3: there are a couple
1: (laughs) that do that theme (laughs)
3: That's the case of every episode. He runs
1: into like the child version of himself, and his dad gives him a pep talk. The adult one, when he's finally like looked through his wallet and seen that he has bills from the future. And and it takes the guy so long to figure out that he's in the past in a way that we would not tolerate now. We would not tolerate, if you're having a supernatural thing, of course, in real life, it would take the person who's being subjected to a supernatural experience. There would be a lot of resistance to that. But as viewers given that we're watching The Twilight Zone and we expect this to happen, I think our tolerance for the person just disbelieving everything is really low. And so there are a number of storytelling hurdles that are taken on in a different way. And just the sensibility is so different in late 50s, early 60s, that I think once, as you Gerber brothers have done, have adjusted to that mindset, then I think a lot of this could be erased. But I think from the present standpoint, current audiences I don't think if you introduce the average Black Mirror watcher to old Twilight Zones, maybe with certain exceptions, there might be some episodes that are really just flawless, storytelling-wise, that the sensibility is timeless. But for the most part, it's something that I don't think ages well, and is maybe uh, there are a lot of reasons for that that we should discuss here. But I think that that makes it, if you think that the abstract form of these things is good. In other words, it's supernatural stuff. Uh It's playing on our imaginations, and it's having some moral lesson that is relevant to the time that the story is being told. That is exactly the kind of thing that you would expect that we should be able to do freshly now, and that the episodes now would connect with audiences, would speak to our lives much better than these things from the late 50s, early 60s. I'm going to have to go to the school of rock,
3: of all things, to respond to that, Mark. There's a line in one of the songs where Dewey sings, How can you kick me out of what is mine? Well, you're off this podcast. You know, that's all true, Mark. And we can't filter out our own priors, right? I mean, I can imagine what it's like to watch these, not having grown up watching them and revering them, but I can't actually do it. And I've seen plenty of evidence that your viewpoint is pretty common. You know, I've shown Twilight Zones to people and gotten kind of shrugs saying, yeah, well, I saw that coming. And another thing, in addition to it reflecting the time we live in, and how we're used to stories being told, is our skills as viewers. I think one of the things is, we've already been talking about plot twists and twist endings. I kind of feel like the twist ending itself is just something that we as viewers are, whether I don't know if we're burnt out on it, or it's just we're at the point where we're so expecting it that it's seldom even fun, even when it does surprise us. So With so many Twilight Zones having that being a key part of the story, even if it's not the most important part of the story or the thing that endures, it can be tedious to watch what is essentially a 25 minutes of sort of a one-trick pony. Like, here's the setup, and here's whatever it is, 22 minutes to get to the ending. I'll say also, Ken, he gave us a list, and you're going to post it, of what he called the eight episodes that he would use to make a case for the show's greatness. Well, that leaves a hundred plus episodes, right? And I think the very worst ones are not great examples and they're no fun to rewatch. And I'm not gonna defend to the death every single Twilight Zone episode, because some of them are sort of a hard pass when I try to rewatch it or I have to be doing something else because it just can't hold my attention for that long.
4: The way to handle it is how you try to sell the original series. If you try to sell it as, you know, oh, there's some great surprise endings, I think that's gonna be a tough sell in 2020. I've introduced the show to a few people, uh, maybe like four or five years ago. My daughter was in her early teens and part of her required home education was to watch a few Twilight Zones. I didn't try to sell it as these are some, oh, some crazy stories. Oh, you're going to be surprised. I tried to sell it as this is like really great writing. I've done this, you know, also like my partner who's my age, I think was able to maybe appreciate that better because remembers shows from the 70s and 80s where we were all grew up with a different expectation, you know, whereas someone who's younger doesn't. But if you look back at the writing on the introduction of The Obsolete Man, or the dialogue in, it's not quite a bottle episode, but Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? That could almost function as like a well-written play, as theater. I mean, some of this is so well-crafted that if you don't Try to accept this twist ending as the primary value of the show. And it's got some excellent acting and some, even some still some neat directing. I mean, some, even some of the shots in the obsolete man are artistic. I find I think that's the way to view it. And that's also the way to kind of sell it to someone who's maybe an older viewer who's never really immersed themselves in the show. I guess maybe let's focus on one of them. Maybe will the real Martian
1: please stand up? That's the first one on your list. Can we give an outline of the plot? Sure.
3: So it's a bus that has uh, stopped in a uh, diner during the winter during icy conditions and all the passengers get out, but somehow there's one more passenger that goes into the diner that came out of the bus. And this is preceded by a strange object landing in the sky. So it very much is played out in terms of the different people in the room, including a few officers who showed up trying to figure out who among them might be the Martian.
2: Did you guess correctly? I want to know Are if you guys guessed it? who the we, Martian we was. We could
3: spoil it. We guessed when I saw it when I was seven. On probably not. <laughs> that's a question for you, Erica. Did you guess correctly? I did not.
2: No, I tend to go for not what the obvious choice is. You know, I'll be like that person looks suspicious, and then I'm like, but it can't be that person. That's too easy. And then I'll go for the next person. And. I think you can
4: describe this episode without actually giving away the very very ending. I think so. I think you can still talk about it and leave this one as a surprise for any viewers because this one's this one's really great. It's a very twilight zone twilight zone. I mean, this is super typical of the show.
3: Right? There are a lot of things going on in the diner that would suggest that there is some otherworldly or exerting forces on the group and there is a lot of the paranoia and self-doubt that goes on of or doubt of one's fellow person. At one point, the people who came off the bus in groups are pairing off, saying, well, we're a couple, so we both know we were on the bus. And immediately, a woman in the married couple looks to her husband and says, did you always have that mole on your chin? Or whatever she said, <laughs> to the point where you know our ability to distrust is turned up to 11 almost immediately. To set back a little bit, I don't think we were suggesting with this list that they were the best ones or the most famous ones. And I think The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street explores this topic very, very similarly. But uh, this one is just a little bit, I think, tighter as an episode.
2: That was my favorite part when she called out her husband and he's like, look here. (laughs) (laughs) That was, And it did, it changed our expectations of who the alien could be, right? Because... I had already thought that too. Oh, clearly it's not going to be the couples. And then all of a sudden, we don't even trust that anymore.
1: But But if you admit that it could be a body replacement issue, then the whole idea that there were six and now there are seven, it seems like we've denied the premises of the original problem. If you then say, oh, it could be one of the couple members after all. So that was something that struck me actually as a a false note, you know, as something that ref- maybe reflects the paranoia of the group, but that as a modern viewer figuring out mysteries, <laughs> like I was a little impatient with that. And I also, just as Ken was saying, this is a great example. The dialogue is so good. Well, I saw a lot of things, you know, with the one, the important businessman. I've got to get to my meeting, and the the bus driver saying, "You might be respected downtown by <laughs> business matters, but when it comes to buses and bridges, I'm the guy you got to listen to." Like. The- That This just sounded like old, clunky dialogue to me.
2: I repeated that phrase three times in a row after he (laughs) said it because it was so perfectly alliterative and very old-timey. But it's so charming. Don't you think it's charming, Mark?
1: I did enjoy it. I don't think that invalidates it being cheesy and not high-grade theater in the way that Ken is describing.
2: I don't think he said um, it had to be high-grade theater. But theater, I think to a lot of people, is a lot more theatrical. Than watching a movie, you know, watching a movie or TV show these days is feels a lot more like what we consider to be reality. The acting is a lot more subtle. But when you watch these, yeah, you can tell these people went straight from the theater to the screen with the exact same techniques, right? Especially like the old man who I immediately recognized. I was like, I know that guy from somewhere. The old man at the counter who had like his eyes were always facing different directions, right? And he became a very famous character actor in Westerns. But he was completely overdone, right? But that's part of the conceit of the show. And as I kept watching it, I realized that I think the closest thing we have to it now is David Lynch. His actors, most of the time, are going completely over the top. But there's a method to why he wants them to do that, right? And it feels so much more dreamlike. And in a way, we can separate ourselves from that world a bit more. It feels like we are in a dream that we can't control and we keep trying, you know, like when I'm in a dream and I'm trying to run and I just can't move quickly at all. And it's unsettling in a way that I think that watching something that feels more like reality is not somehow as unsettling as that.
3: Boy, I hadn't made that connection to David Lynch. I'll have to think about that a little more. I see what you're saying about the dreamlike quality, but it's right on the edge because There is an internal consistent reality to it. It's not like it's being presented to us that it doesn't logically make sense, but for us, it's just our world just shifted enough, rotated enough from how it should look that we're kind of feeling unsettled and things feel disjointed, even though everything logically follows. There's nothing in that episode that doesn't, to go back to it, that doesn't make sense.
2: I disagree with that. Why are they all so incredibly quick to agree that there must be an alien? Like, nobody has to be convinced that aliens exist.
4: As opposed to simply miscounting. (laughs) Another difference between the modern episodes and the originals is that in the original episodes, you quickly know the setup and the rules are made clear right away. And we're only wondering how it's going to play out and kind of how much human nature is going to rare its ugly head. But in the newer ones, they're sort of forced to have a new sensibility. And, you know, you spend some bit of the episode not sure what's really happening. And like a lot of modern TV, and I guess I I like how modern TV is. And we've got very often have to, you know, you see a couple glimpses of some plot unfolding, and it's not until the very, you know, maybe the last third of the episode that you kind of see, oh, that's what's actually happening. The old Twilight Zone just kind of went for it. and It's okay, this character can reach into his box and give you what you need, and we're just going to see how it plays out. But it's not like, the twist isn't going to be, how did he know? What's he really doing? What's the nature of that box? That's not what's happening. It's going to be, you know, I'm talking about the episode now, also from our list, of what you need. But we're just going to find out, you know, how the asshole is going to kind of get his comeuppance, right? I mean, we kind of sense it's happening. And that's not how these episodes go in the, in the modern era. I guess some of them do. This was a question that was
1: haunting me throughout this is what I thought, based on my memory, a Twilight Zone was, which was just something a little weird's happening. You know, so that was in the 80s when we were kids. People would start singing the, you know, that in the Jaws theme. But like as soon as somebody says, my lunch was here, but now it's gone. do do <laughs> like that. It's that a, a recurring joke. I didn't even remember that it was quite so heavy on the political messaging. That that really is the point of most of them. That it's a morality tale or a political message. So it's interesting to see what element these new writers that are interpreting things because it's not Jordan Peele, you know, exerting a massive editorial heavy hand, so that they all are like Get Out or Us. It's a multiplicity of voices, and I think different writers among them are taking the formula more or less literally, or feeling the need to make it more or less political. So I would expect there to be a lack of consistent vision in the in the new ones. It's more the Rorschach of how various people that enjoyed the old show interpret what's important about it.
2: Hey guys, let's take a moment for a sponsor break. If you're like me, one of the surprises of stay-at-home orders has been noise bleed, right? You want to listen to what you're listening to, not what your new office mate is listening to. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you drop hundreds of dollars on a pair, check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of any other premium wireless earbuds on the market. And they sound just as amazing as the other top audio brands. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are the best ones yet. They have six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a beautiful, compact design that gives you a nice, noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are perfect for Zoom calls or podcasts. My Raycons are so comfortable. They form a great noise barrier, and the design is the sleekest I've seen. Unlike some other brands, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet, with no dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during those video calls. The company was co-founded by Ray J, and celebrities like Snoop Dogg and Melissa Etheridge are obsessed with Raycons. Pick up a pair and see what the hype is all about. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash pretty and enter code pretty15. That's b-u-y-r-a-y-c-o-n dot com slash pretty and enter the code pretty15 for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Now back to Pretty Much Pop.
4: You do mention the morality plays and the social commentary in the original series, and that's one way in which the original series and the new series are similar. They're handling it a little bit differently. Like the first season of Jordan Peele's series was way more heavy-handed than, in my opinion, than the second season. Although the second season still covered some really good moral issues. And in fact, Mark, I, I wasn't going to watch necessarily the one that you suggested I watch, Try Try, but I'm glad that I did because I thought it was uh, really excellent. But that's one way the shows are similar, but it went beyond that. I mean, even the in the original series, there was an episode called, I think it's A Big Tall Wish, where he simply had the main character and all and his close associates and friends in that show were all African-American actors. And what was interesting is that back in 1960 or 61, you didn't have entire episodes of a show that was basically black characters unless somehow their blackness was a part of the story. And it wasn't at all in this. If you listen to interviews with Rod Serling, he was definitely tapped into racial matters ahead of his time, certainly for writers in Hollywood. And it mattered to him a lot. And so doing something like that was no accident. And I think Jordan Peele cares about it a lot, too. I mean, that's one big similarity. Again, they're handling it differently, for sure. But that's an important commonality between the original series and now this newest one.
2: I have a question. Why The Howling Man? Because out of all of them, that was the one I was least interested in. And it was also possibly the most out-of-this-world kind of theatrical. It felt like watching an old horror movie, almost a very low-budget B-horror film. And it just didn't grab my attention like the others did. So I'm wondering why that made it onto your list as something that was either important, because it's one you just love, or is the writing, or is it something that's important about the story that I should pick up?
3: How does it make the case, Ken, for Twilight Zone's greatness?
4: I think I wanted to get a sampling of different subgenres and I really wanted to get one good kind of horror one in there, but not horror the way perchance to dream is horror. Cause that's also scary. And perhaps it was a little bit of Erica, what you suggested that it was one that as a kid, I had some like memorable or some good memories about. I was actually, uh, really delighted a few, maybe it was a year ago when I saw, I didn't want to watch Castle Rock. Yes. Uh, that episode is on the TV in the background of one of, in, in the first season, Oh, which is also, I'm now I'm spoiling Castle Rock, but it's a, a hint of where the plot is going. I see. Maybe the writing isn't, Yeah, not maybe, but for sure the writing is not quite as strong, but I think it does cover an area that a lot of, there are quite a few supernatural and scary episodes in the original series, and I wanted to make sure I caught at least one of those in the list. Um it's also a very twilight zony episode. Yeah, but it it, it is a bit over the top.
2: What does twilight zony episode mean? I feel like that's when I tell my husband I don't like that kind of fish because it tastes too fishy and he looks at me and he's like that's what fish is supposed to taste like now. So what is a twilight zony <laughs> episode?
4: <laughs> oh boy, that's a good question. Um I guess it has to do with the not everyone has a twist ending. Not every one of the episodes does, but certainly having a surprise ending makes it or having an ending that's really like an important ending is a key feature of being Twilight Zony. Maybe the pacing of it that we've got, you know, very early on, we know the setup and we're going to see how it plays out. Ken, I would add a key thing
3: that happens in a lot of Twilight Zones is the irresistible force that people are striving against, but really don't have any power over. You know, we see that in Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? And they're trying to figure out something to prevent the Martian attack or the alien attack, but they really can't. And the Howling Man, this is a creature that can be captured for a while, but never for long. And and I think we see it in Perchance to Dream is another one of our episodes where he is able to push off this dream that's haunting him and trying to kill him for a while, but he can't for good. Nick of Time has sort of a beautiful duality where our main characters... Do you manage to, this is a, a, the classic William Shatner episode where he and his wife are in a small town. It's a pretty famous iconography of the napkin holder that has a little bobblehead devil on it where you put in a penny and ask a yes, no question. I know we've seen that and I think it showed up in one of the 2019 episodes that napkin holder was sitting out somewhere and he became a slave temporarily to the yes, no questions that this oracle was giving him. But eventually his wife helped him break free of it. But no sooner do they leave town than another couple comes in and they're slaves to it. So I feel like we fight these forces or the people do in the Twilight Zone, but it's usually the forces that went out over them. And we definitely see that in The Howling Man.
2: I like that. That makes sense. Why do you think that is? What do you think it's trying to tell us? about ourselves or about society, that there is no free will? Like, what was he exploring there? Mark? I don't know, it seemed like a good Mark question.
1: Isn't the, sort of the definition of the uncanny, is this something larger than us that we don't understand? This is more familiar maybe in the context of uh, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, that's just the whole notion of the sublime, that one of the prime ways that we appreciate art is... Not just the beautiful, in other words, a form that we can understand, that we can trace with our imagination, but something that is vast and unknowable. And yeah, Stephen King tapped into that, following on Lovecraft very well. But that's interesting that Twilight Zone, since it's not a horror show, not consistently, that it has to also think that there are forces maybe even working in our favor. Just there are things that are greater than us that we don't understand.
3: And because it's essentially a short story, we have so little invested in our characters, even the ones that we love, that we're willing to let them come to harm in a way that we can't tolerate for a novel or a serial show or a movie. I've only known you 20 minutes and maybe you're a bad person and something happens to you that's bad and I feel good about it, or you're a good person and something bad happens to you and I feel bad about it, but I'm on to the next Twilight Zone or I'm on to Gunsmoke or whatever else was showing at the time. There is a a real freedom, especially back in the day. How many episodes were there per season? It was a lot. It was not like it is now.
4: 150 episodes over five seasons, roughly? 36 in season one.
3: So you have the ability to take risks and do things. And if it doesn't work this week, then we'll try something else next
4: week. That inevitability of these forces is also what makes things scary in, in many of these cases. One we've only mentioned a little bit was It's a Good Life, which is also on the list. That one's probably a classic that would be on a lot of people's list.
2: Well, I love that.
4: Yeah, that one's great. (laughs) Maybe my favorite. Fun fact, you know that little boy, uh, Billy Moomy, who plays uh, Anthony Fremont and is also in, he's in Lost in Space and he's also in Twilight Zone the movie and in one of the 2002 series. Babylon 5. Is he on Babylon 5 too? Okay. I think Mark of all people will appreciate this the most, but he may know this. Do you know what his role is in music? That he wrote fish heads, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Barnes and Barnes? Yes. Uh, that is exactly right. Uh, he wrote Fishheads. But anyway, so in that episode, that inevitability of, I mean, he's the force, right? He's that, the evil force in that episode that is unstoppable. Can you just characterize that? He's a child that controls a
1: town, that he has godlike powers, but he has a six-year-old's temperament and gets mad at people and then can turn them into things and make them disappear, etc.
3: He controls a town insofar as he may have disappeared the rest of the universe,
4: (laughs) but yes, that
2: is correct. He's also adorable.
4: Adorable. Anyway, continue, Ken. Yeah. Anyway, so that is a, a great example of it being totally frightening and frightening because we know there's nothing that anything could be done. And when we see one of the neighbors pleading for someone to put an end to this, even the first time, I just you, you could see on his face, and I could feel it in my heart that this wasn't going to go well. And that scene is one of the most frightening and amazing scenes in Twilight Zone history. I think. But it it is all because it's, as Brian had sort of characterized, these Twilight Zoniness is that this is a force that can't be stopped. And it really, the morality is about how we deal with these forces, right? It's of, you know, what we as people, how we react to the situation and what we value. And, you know, there's a man willing to kill a little boy or pleading for somebody to kill a little boy to end the torture. So,
3: Ken, did you rewatch Twilight Zone, the movie, or have you watched it recently enough that you can speak to the remake of that episode?
4: Two nights ago. Okay,
3: so you saw the Joe Dante version of that same story. What, what was your take on the
4: remake? Anthony Fremont is not his character. Doesn't really have some of the really the same uh, the same power. I don't mean like his magical powers, but he doesn't have the same power of performance as uh, Billy Mooney does. That one is very cartoonish. I mean, literally, cartoons are part of the story, but it's a, it's a very cartoonish version of something that I think is much better in the scary version. What's notable, I think, and uh, I encourage anybody who's listening or interested to seek this out, it's based on a short story, which is also a classic of science fiction, and it's also very good and very scary. So we've got two scary versions of the story, the original written one, and then the original Twilight Zone version of it. And I don't think this one's great. I think it's one of the two better episodes of the movie. And so I guess it's good that when some of those monsters pop out, it's legitimately scary. When you see the missing mouth on one of the relatives, that disturbed me as a child. Uh, Erica, you...
2: Uh, I, I remember, like, that's the one of the only images that's truly stuck with me through all the years. When I don't remember how old I was when I first saw that. I didn't know what It's a Good Life was going to be about, but as soon as I saw him wishing people to the cornfield, I was like, oh my God, it's the girl without the mouth. I'm looking at the picture right now just to remind myself, it's still terrifying.
4: It is. It is scary. It's not as good as the original. So Erica, you would have seen that one first. And so to you, that was a scary episode, flat out scary, right?
2: It was, but I haven't seen it as an adult. So maybe it was just scary to me as a child.
4: Also some fun trivia, do you know who the, uh, in the Twilight Zone, the movie version of that, do you know who the young sister is in that? Or well, the sister's a slightly older sister? That would be Bart Simpson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Nancy Cartwright, yep.
2: Oh.
3: My take on the remake, I mean, it's a different kind of monster, right? He's not heartless, he just has powers... That are appropriate to his maturity level, which it didn't really work for me having rewatched. I think that the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet was really the only really successful episode of the Twilight Zone movie, which maybe it's just a testament to George Miller being a genius and John Lithgow being a genius. But it was
4: a great segment. Did you like that one also, Ken, having just rewatched it? Oh yeah, that clearly was the standout. That's the best of the four by a lot. And that monster is way scarier than the, I want to say it's Nick Kravitz is the original guy who plays the monster.
2: It wasn't his fault. Why would you put him in a teddy bear costume with a scary face? I mean, it would have been much scarier just to have a human being on the wing, right?
4: Yeah, maybe the old man from the uh, diner.
2: Yes. Yes.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you saw
3: something on the wing. I didn't see anything on the wing. What are you guys talking about?
4: (laughs) What? And yeah, not everybody saw the
1: saw it. It's right. We should mention the 2002 sequel to that. It's a good life with Billy Moomy and Cloris Leachman from the original show. Just that it actually is 40 years later. So it was like an interesting narrative challenge. That how would this have evolved? I think most likely, like at some point, the kid would have, uh, you know, wished the entire universe <laughs> to disappear. I don't think the thing was self-sustaining, but it wasn't going to make it 40 years. <laughs> yes. But somehow, you know, there're still people left in this town, but he's a grown up. So you can't blame his fickleness and his dismissals of people on his youth anymore. It's more that he's always had everybody giving in to him for all these years and how that then would have adjusted his temperament. I mean, I think the episode utterly failed <laughs> in in delivering on this idea, but it certainly makes you think.
3: Right, he had no moral development because he didn't have any of the societal cues and consequences that supposedly, according to Cognitive Psych, drive us through all the steps of developing morally. And this idea that the very first step of you don't harm people so they won't harm you like, never even happened to him, right? He can't get to step two beyond, because step one never even happens to him.
2: <gasps> we should make a new episode of this about Facebook and how people are terrible on Facebook. But people just keep like snoozing them rather than unfriending them or saying anything against it. Like, I'll just ignore it. It'll go away. And then that person never learns because they're never told otherwise.
4: So we are all the monster on Facebook. We
2: are all the monster.
4: If I simply (laughs) unfriend somebody because of something they said or did on Facebook, that's not significant. uh, It's not enough punishment.
2: I think unfriending is fine. But, you know, like my, my parents are very sweet people and they get very tired of seeing like terrible comments. So they'll just snooze people because they don't want to turn into a fight, I guess. But I'm like, well, you're not fixing the problem. So what, what you're basically saying is uh, because this boy, right, was never taught, he continued to make life worse for everybody, including himself. See, we could definitely make a new episode.
3: We need a feature on Facebook where it tells people when you're snoozing them or unfriending them. Because Ken doesn't know I unfriended him, but I did. Well, now he knows. I think we should, I mean, we've gone on a while here, we should talk about other anthology shows, which I think all descend from the Twilight Zone, but there are a number of them. And I think probably the most successful recently would be Black Mirror. And there have been a number, but that's one that has received critical acclaim and has won Emmy Awards and, and other things. I don't know if all of you are watchers or if you would just watch them for, for this discussion. I tend to always give these a try. And I admit Black Mirror is one of my favorites and is one I've looked forward to. Now it has the benefit of only having three to six episodes a season. So you can really aim high when you're doing that, even though they are not all of equal quality. I know it's set in modern times and it's always about technology. About the Black Mirrors we carry around in our pockets or, or how they spin forward. Is there something fundamentally different about what those shows are now versus what original Twilight Zone is or even what the current Twilight Zone is? Is there a qualitative difference or is there a difference in type or is it just a difference in quality?
1: Isn't Black Mirror all hard sci-fi, that there is no magic? It really is just an examination of dystopian consequences of technologies that we could potentially adopt. So it seems much more consistent in its type of social commentary and you know what it's doing, than Twilight Zone, which is more all over the place. Does that why it's better though? If you concede it's better, it's better because it's better writing. I don't know.
4: <laughs> You're saying better than the other uh, spinoffs of the Twilight Zone, or are we, not, are we comparing the two?
3: I'm comparing it to say the current Amazing Stories, the current Twilight Zone, what I've seen of Electric Dreams on Amazon so recent ones.
2: I think it's really really well done and when you know the first season came to us here in the US I was like wow this is such a wonderful homage to the twilight zone but it's done in such a modern way. Of course not every single episode is is fantastic but neither is the twilight zone. It's sad to me that people are now not actually giving it what I, I feel like the respect that it does deserve in this type of genre. And I definitely think now we can compare it to the new Twilight Zone. It does a much better job.
3: Who put up the article that we read on Cinema Blend by Richard Knight titled, Five Ways Black Mirror is Better Than the Twilight Zone? Oh yeah, I, I looked that up, yep. Okay, having read through that, there was one of the five reasons that really struck me and it was that black mirror has no or at least very little reliance on twists and i know we've already talked about twist endings but there really is some truth in that once you're freed of having to do that you can just try to tell a good story and if it gets twisty because that's where the story takes you or that's what's needed that's fine and if it doesn't there still can be a, a great story to be told with sort of your that what if conceit that drives it and You're off to the races, and if there's good storytelling and good writing and good acting and good directing, you can still get a real gem of a story. One thing that Black Mirror did that I think didn't do it any favors was leading off with the episode National Anthem. The very first episode of Black Mirror, a member of the royal family is taken hostage, and to be released, the prime minister has to have sex with a pig on television, and the idea is we're all so fractured in what we watch now that the only thing that will all get us to have attention at the same thing is our national anthem or the prime minister fucking a pig. And it's a good episode and it's not terrible to watch and it does have an interesting ending, but it is not how I recommend people start that show. And I've, I'm always pointing them to, there are a couple episodes and it's, the episode I point them to has changed as more episodes come out. But I tell people not to start with that because they can just get put off with the sheer squick factor and never come back and realize there's a lot of other good things to be seen on Black Mirror. There
2: are definitely some valid arguments for people who say, It just makes me sad, it makes me upset, so why would I watch it? Whereas the Twilight Zone is it has some some just fun, sillier types of episodes. Or maybe because it is science fiction, like you're saying, Mark, instead of like speculative fiction, it doesn't feel as close to us, so it's not as dark. It-
4: Black Mirror series, I love the show, and I think it's really also on the short list of the best science fiction shows I can remember. You know, watching. Perhaps its only drawback is that there isn't enough of it, and I don't know if when it eventually, it's not done yet. But when it eventually finishes, it's hard to imagine. I'm not going to say, "Boy, I wish there was more." I'm sure I'm going to say, "I wish that there was more." The fact that I think Mark pointed out that this there's never a supernatural element of it that does mean that the Black Mirror universe is much more restricted and not quite claustrophobic, but it's not as wide open as the Twilight Zone universe. It also kind of feels like people in the Black Mirror universe are worse people. Does that feel, I guess, I'm, I know there's some exceptions, you know, San Junipero, uh, is it Kill the DJ? Is that the other one? It's, you know, where the, you've got some good forces at work. Hang the DJ. Hang the DJ, thanks, yeah. The writer said there aren't a lot of twist endings, maybe there aren't a lot, but there are some, huh? Yeah, there are some. I
3: don't feel like they rely on it, or it's the only thing that makes the episode memorable
1: or hang together.
4: Let's just say we're going to
1: have a Black Mirror episode eventually.
4: Let me ask a Twilight Zone question about the Black Mirror. If theoretically... If Charlie Brooker were to have created this show as a new Twilight Zone series, if everything else were the same, but we added maybe an intro and an outro and marketed it as the Twilight Zone, it was still just as great, right? Would that be a credible Twilight Zone effort? Would would we say, oh, this isn't really the Twilight Zone, or oh, wow, what a modern take on it? I think it's more like, so I haven't watched much of the Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams, but I
1: feel like what... Black Mirror is doing is much more in the spirit of Philip K. Dick, except maybe more consistently Black, (laughs) whereas Philip K. Dick's visions of the future aren't necessarily all dystopian. Just a number of them are. It just seems much more specific thing. I actually really, in revisiting the old Twilight Zone, again, I didn't realize how much social commentary, even awareness of racial issues, was in the old episodes until revisiting this. And so I feel like Jordan Peele, and he actually is the perfect person to be revisiting that and is putting forth the spirit of that much more consistently, you know, in episodes like Replay, you know, it's explicitly about police shooting, you know, driving while black. And yeah, the different. Not All Men, these other ones about misogyny. You know, I originally was thinking, oh gosh, that's heavy handed. That's This is like a political adaptation of Twilight Zone. But no, that's actually what Twilight Zone always was. Maybe that the censors wouldn't let it be as explicit as that in the past. So no, I don't think Brooker is doing the same thing at all because he's expressing certain fears, you know, of technological advances and some of that, you know, goes with man's inhumanity to man that would make those advances worse. Why they would be dystopian is not just the technology in itself, but what we would do with it. But that still seems a separate project from what Serling and I think Jordan Peele are doing.
3: Yeah. I think that's true to the point where Ken, I feel like. Black Mirror is its own thing now so much that when I watched the episode Downtime from season two, I was thinking, you know, let's leave the Black Mirror episodes to the professionals.
1: Yep. Oh. Whereas the Blue Scorpion is a really Twilight zone Twilight Zone of something that is haunting you and following you around and is driven by forces beyond your comprehension that will ultimately make you do something that may or may not turn out well. That seemed very Cronenberg-y to me, that particular episode as well. I thought that Blurry Man, I actually just listened to the Twilight Zone podcast talking about Blurry Man to sort of remind me, because I hadn't seen it since it came out. This is the lapse episode of the first season of this latest revival, where it's actually an interrogation of, like, what is the Twilight Zone trying to do? And I think it is, you know, there's a character that sort of represents the group of writers that were taking on this challenge, and they're being haunted, I'll spoil the end of it, by Rod Serling. And at least according to this account that I just got on a podcast— Rod Serling basically tells them, look, I know the social commentary stuff is important. That was important to me too, but also the childlike wonder at magic. Like that is an equally important part of this. And you got to hold on to that to sort of have the whole spirit of the Twilight Zone.
4: I don't see any of that in Black Mirror. Speaking of that episode, that blurry man, I found a bit unforgivable. Maybe this is my uh, clinging to my childlike affection for the original series, but breaking uh, the fourth wall and is it the fifth wall? I don't know what wall, whatever wall it is. You're um, right. The fifth wall
3: into the fifth dimension.
4: <laughs> no, go on. Breaking the, the extra wall and making this a show about the twilight zone and making Rod Sterling in as a character really seems like a violation. I've even been struggling with he- hearing, uh, you know, swear words in the show because it's, That's not what the original show was, right? If it, in the end, it was, I know, because it was on CBS, but just having Rod Sterling as a character in the show, it felt unforgivable to me.
3: I'm not saying it was terrible because I don't need to.
4: (laughs) I
1: don't recall actually enjoying that episode. Let me put it that way. But I didn't think it was a bad idea. I didn't mind it as a shtick to make a comment about what they're trying to do. And, you know, if you're going to use the uncanny technology of digitally reproducing somebody who's dead, It's a pretty damn good target for it, where it's the whole point is to be uncanny.
2: I just think with the new Twilight Zones, I have been really disappointed in the writing overall. I think that the actors do a good job with what they're given. I think that it looks beautiful. You know, we got to give props to that. It it looks fantastic. It's just I find it to be either super predictable or the dialogue doesn't give me much of anything. I'm really just disappointed with that. I think why it frustrates me so much is it's an anthology show. So it doesn't all have to be the same writer. You can give it to the best writers out there. And I know there's some great science fiction writers out there. So why is it that we're getting things that feel undercooked?
4: I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it's the writing. I mean, Jordan Peele has to take some responsibility for that, right? I mean, he's the showrunner and he himself has done some superb writing, right? So uh, it's hard to totally explain that. Sure. He has written some of the episodes, or no, none of them. I I'm not even sure. I see
1: season one, actually. He didn't write any of them that I see. Well, oh, no, sorry. He did the story.
4: He co-wrote the story in Nightmare at 30,000 feet. Okay.
3: And he wrote
4: Downtime. I don't have a good explanation why the show isn't quite working. I mean, the the, the casts are very good, typically. Let me ask. I'm, from the new season, which I, th- I think is getting better reviews, I'm not really sure. Maybe it's a mixed bag. Maybe... The new season just has, maybe it's not better overall, but it's got more good episodes and also a few real duds. Does anyone have uh, like any from the, the second season or either of the two Jordan Peele seasons that they think are really strong episodes?
2: I did like the first episode from season two with Jimmy Simpson.
4: Meet
1: in the Middle.
2: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I loved the conceit of them having this entire conversation and watching him act without speaking. And... I thought the dialogue was done pretty well. I wasn't super crazy about the twist, but it did feel, I guess if we're using that whole Twilight zone feel, right? And we have this force that you, you know something bad's going to happen to this guy. You just don't know what it's going to be. That one I thought was pretty good. And then from there, I wasn't so impressed.
1: I counted three twists in that. We won't relate them, <laughs> but like three places where the plot started to go a place that I did not expect it to go. All in the last you know 15 minutes. Uh, and I'd count try, try the one that I recommended, so that I see Alex Rubens wrote that that he was a writer for Keen Peel. He did the comedian the premiere to the first season, which was in some ways a disappointing one, but was super Twilight Zony and reflected a reality that when comedians tell jokes about their personal lives that there's an interesting dynamic there, like it at least was saying that much. I think that. <laughs> Had it only been 30 minutes and actually adhered better to the formula of old Twilight Zone, that would have been better. And probably yes. all of these new episodes would have been better if they can just get the premise out there and let it develop in a very tight little way and don't make us sit in there for 45, 50
4: minutes.
2: I think you're right. I think 25 minute episodes are the, is probably the way to go.
4: We have a good test case here because of the five original seasons, one of them was a season full of one hour episodes. And just again, speaking for myself, I think the short episodes, the ones from seasons one, two, three, and five, that's where the good episodes are. Not exclusively. There's a couple good ones from the hour long ones. But if we want proof that the trial zone works better in a half an hour than an hour, we've got the original series to actually check that i think quite a bit of the new series could be done in 25 minutes and sort of that it's also that compression of time that also is kind of forcing these to feel like they're a play right erica used the word theatrical which is really right but also plays have a kind of condensed feel sometimes or compressed feel maybe that's the problem with the with the new series is that it's too slow all right as we wrap up
3: i just have to make my case for the episode eight because octopuses, oh my god. I'm getting faces, everybody. That's I the case. That's your case. <laughs> octopuses are scary. <laughs> no, it's ter- that one is just hot garbage. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed aspects of some of them. I don't think I would recommend any of them wholeheartedly. I think that try try stuck with me the most because of what it was doing in a way that seemed really smart. Maybe we can talk about it a tiny bit more in our after talk,
1: so that'll be full of spoilers. Yep. We should wrap this up. This is way too much, but there's so many, we haven't even touched on the 80s things. The 80s, uh, I'll do some more of that in the After Talk. So yes, folks should go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop for any kind of donation. You will get access to After Talks to every single one of our episodes, including this one that you're going to stick around for, Ken, right? Yeah, I'll be there. All right. Well, thanks for joining
4: us, Ken. Uh, Thank you guys for having me. I am so delighted to be in your company again for a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Bye, listeners.
2: Thanks, listeners.
4: Bye, everybody. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every
1: episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.